Welcome to Living Word Bible Church, a lovely place for families where we have a passion to sing great songs to Jesus and where sound Bible teaching is central in home groups and in preaching at Sunday services. Living Word Bible Church, teaching the Bible verse by verse. So the reading is from Exodus chapter 23, verses 20, and then goes through to Exodus chapter 24, verse 11. God's angel to prepare the way. See, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him. And listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion, since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hivites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites and Jebusites and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away disease from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation, nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the Lord would, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Chapter 24. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. And the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. 
Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis, lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Thank you. Talked on that passage. So um, we've got this passage here from Exodus and at Bethel over the last couple of years, we've in blocks, we've been working our way through the the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, uh, we've just recently finished Leviticus. Uh, but this passage in Exodus was one that's kind of stood out to me um, quite a bit. Uh, the story of Exodus, is, it's told and retold so many times and in so many ways that we might tend to think we know the story well, uh, even if we've never actually spent a lot of time digging into the text of the actual book. And when we do dig into the text, we might be surprised to find details about the story that we didn't know were there, or maybe things that we assumed were in the story based on the movies we've watched that aren't actually in the story. Uh, and I've got to confess that when I really started studying the book of Exodus to prepare to preach through it, uh, I came apart across parts of the story I hadn't really noticed before or seen the significance of them. And this passage contains a couple of those. This uh, section of Exodus from Exodus 19 onwards focuses in on the Lord uh, making his covenant with the people of Israel. It's there that he confirms that he is their God and they are his people. And it begins with the call in chapter 19. I think I've got a slide for that, have I? Yes. Chapter 19, 5 to 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then in chapters 20 to 23... Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments, which are the foundational terms of this covenant. What it looks like for the Lord to be their God and for them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength, so the first four commandments, and what it looks like for them to live as his people, so loving their neighbour as themselves, commandments uh, five to six. And we're familiar with the first part of chapter 20, which are the basic Ten Commandments, but maybe not so much with the rest of those chapters, which flesh out what those commandments actually look like as people apply them to their lives. Now, at this point, these commandments are spoken by the Lord through Moses to the people. Moses is yet to receive the actual physical tablets of stone. Uh, where God writes with his finger these 
commandments. And these tablets will then be placed in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, which represents God's throne. Uh, so it's the official covenant document, and God sits on this document to keep it secure, this covenant relationship. So the Israelites, they've heard the terms of the covenant, how they're expected to live as the Lord's holy people. And then here at the end of chapter 23, the Lord reiterates his promise to them, how he should expect, how they should expect him to act as he keeps his part of the covenant to bring them into the land, uh, to, uh, to fulfill his promises to Abraham. And with this fulfillment of the promise comes this solemn call to reject all of the other gods of the land of Canaan to worship him alone did you notice that he promises to do all the work of removing the people from the land of Canaan although it won't be instant they'll have to live some time for some time side by side with the Canaanites and their false gods just as they did recently in Egypt but because of what they saw the Lord do in Egypt, where you overthrew all of the false gods of Egypt, they should have the confidence that he can do the same with the false gods in Canaan. In verse 32, he said, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They're exclusively the Lord's covenant people. All they need is him. That's part of the nature of a covenant as opposed to a contract. A contract contract is when I focus on what I can get from the other person in return for what I give them. So a contract is drawn up on the assumption that I can't actually trust that person to keep their side of the deal. I need to lock them into something to make sure they don't rip me off. And if they do try and rip me off, they'll be punished and I'll be compensated. That's contractual thinking. Sinful human beings operate contractually all the time because in our selfishness, we're more interested in what we can get from others than what we can give to others. On the other hand, a covenant is based not on what I can get, but on what I can give. It's based on the principle of trust, not mistrust. What secures a covenant is this exclusive promise of faithfulness to the other person, not, not the threat of punishment that they will receive if they're unfaithful to me. That's why marriage is called a covenant. We make promises to be faithful as long as we both shall live. Now, we might think sometimes reading the Bible that God's covenant sounds like a contract. He gives us a long list of what is required of his people. He threatens curses for disobedience. But we, we need to recognise uh, two things. Firstly, in the end, God himself doesn't benefit from his covenant with his people. He doesn't need anything from his creatures to make him more than he already is. We don't add to God's glory by worshipping him. God doesn't change. He doesn't improve or grow. For all eternity, the Father, the Son and the Spirit have been fully satisfied in loving and honouring one another. And 
creation is then the overflow of this Trinitarian love so that we might participate in that Trinitarian joy and love. So God's covenant with his people is one-sided. It's unilateral. He does it for our sake, not for his sake. Everything we see God doing in relation to human beings is not to get something from us, but so that we might be the recipients of what he has for us. Secondly, we need to see in this unfolding story of God's faithfulness to his people, even when they sin grievously, when they break every single part of their covenant obligations, he never revokes his side. He never cancels his promise. Occasionally he speaks to them as if they're no longer his people. Just read the book of Hosea. But he does that to highlight what they actually deserve, only to show then how his own mercy triumphs over his judgment. They will never cease to be his covenant people. So all the curses and all the judgments that we see in the Old Testament, they're not God cancelling a contract with his people. They're God remaining faithful to his covenant promises to refine them, to discipline them as, as if through fire. So the point of all that is to see that a contract is about stuff. It's about what I get. But a covenant is about a relationship. It's what I have with someone. Because God is in very nature a relationship of love, then true relationships are designed to be permanent and exclusive, faithfully exclusive. The relationship Israel has with the Lord is to be shared with no one else. Not the other people, not the other gods. As I said, that's why marriage, human marriage, is an image of the true marriage between God and his people. In a marriage Each partner says, forsaking all others, I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. The glorious thing about the true marriage between God and his people is that as long as we both shall live goes for eternity. Based on a lot of conversations I've had with non-Christians over the years, I think most people think Christianity is a contractual religion just like all the other religions. You try to be a good person to earn your way into heaven. So God pays you back for the good things you do. Now, partly that's because I think that's what people really want to believe. Every sinner wants to think that we are good in and of ourselves, that we're good enough to deserve whatever good there might be on the other side of the grave. And so Even when people hear the gospel message that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what they hear is, be a good person and God will let you into heaven. But also, I guess we need to ask ourselves, do some non-Christians believe this about Christianity? Because that's the message they've received from us whether it's because the church has actually preached salvation by works, by being a good person, or salvation by religious duties, or salvation by the strength of our commitment, or 
Maybe we're just judgmentally presenting ourselves as morally superior to everyone else. Maybe they've actually heard from us that it's about contract, not covenant. Whenever we share the gospel with our words, whenever we seek to live out the gospel before others, we need to have this covenantal framework in our minds and in our hearts, always reminding ourselves that it's God's grace that keeps us as his people, not anything we do. So this covenant with Israel, uh, it points us forward to the new covenant that's made with us in Jesus, but this story doesn't merely point forward to the, the coming of Jesus in the distant future. Jesus is actually present in this story. Verses 20 to 21 speak of uh, God sending an angel to lead them into the land. Now, who is this angel? Clearly, he's a significant figure because not only will he guard them and bring them to the land, but he has authority to speak to them, to command their obedience and he even has authority to withhold forgiveness when they disobey. Now, there's, there are two things that God alone has the prerogative to do, to speak and command obedience and to give or withhold forgiveness. In fact, this angel has the full authority of God. Signified by that phrase, my name is in him. Now, it's easy to speculate too much about angels and their roles in the Old Testament. But in this place, it's clear who this angel is. See what Paul tells the Corinthians when he's reminding them of the Exodus story. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw that symbolism of the rock, which Moses struck with his staff, and from which the water flowed to, to quench the thirst of the people. And that rock pointed to Christ. Jesus called people to come to him and to drink from the living waters that flow from him. And these waters speak of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus pours out upon us and who brings us into the life of the Father and the Son. But see that there's a double symbolism used here, because Paul says that this spiritual rock followed them and this rock was Christ. Now, when Jesus called people to follow him, it was a call to accompany him, to walk with him, share in his journey, to do life with him. That's what discipleship was in the first century. You were with a rabbi if you were his disciple 24-7. As you learned uh you did so as you heard him teach, as you observed his actions, as you participated with him in what he did. So the call to follow wasn't a call to walk behind, but to 
walk with. And this is what the angel will do as he guards the Israelites and brings them to the promised land. Uh, there's a reference in Isaiah 63, 9 that uh, calls him the angel of his presence. He was the mediator of the actual presence of the Lord to the people. He was actually Christ himself, a, a pre-incarnate revelation of the Son. Now, we've already encountered Christ in this way in a number of places through Genesis and Exodus, uh, where he is called the angel of the Lord. The first time, significantly, was when he came to Hagar back in Genesis 16. That was uh, way back in August last year, so let's remind ourselves of the story. Hagar was Sarah's servant. She'd been given to Abraham when Sarah and Abraham were trying to make God's promises of a son come to pass in their own steam. Hagar was pregnant with Abraham's son Ishmael. But Sarah became jealous and she treated Hagar harshly and Hagar fled out into the wilderness. Uh, Interestingly, the same wilderness that the Israelites travelled through when they were going to Mount Sinai. Genesis 16, 7-9 says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Water, again. The spring on the way to Shur, the desert of Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Then a bit later, And so she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seen. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now her experience is echoed on other occasions when people encounter this figure who is firstly identified as the angel of the Lord, but then by the time the encounter has concluded, they realise that they've actually had an encounter with the Lord himself. This word angel in both the Old and New Testaments means literally messenger. Jesus He is the ultimate messenger of God because he is the word that would be made flesh. When we encounter him, we encounter the triune God in all his fullness. Only when we know him are we able to truly say, I know that God sees me and cares for me and he will bring me to the destination that he has for me. That's what Hagar realised when he sent her back to Sarah. And it's what the Israelites will realise when he brings them safely through the desert to the land. God could have simply said here, I will guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention and obey my voice. Do not rebel against me, for I will not pardon your transgression. Because that would have been just as true. Yet he doesn't. He deliberately states it using this angel of the Lord terminology. So that it will be another one of these signs that point forward to the day when the Father 
will send the sun to bring us safely to our destination. Let's see how Jesus used this kind of language when he was praying for his disciples just before he went to the cross. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See how Jesus has kept them in your name, which you have given me. In other words, uh, my name is in him. And in doing so, he's kept them safe. He's brought them to their destination, to the Father himself. And it's important for us to take note of that. Our destination is not heaven. Our destination is the Father. What's important is not the geographical location, but the fact that whatever place we're in, whether it's here in Australia, whether it's the Israelites out wandering around the desert of Shur, God is with us in Christ Jesus. That's your true destination. That's your true location. No matter where you may be in all creation, your real location is in Christ. And in him, you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what the promised land was all about. Yes, it would be a geographical location in which they would live, where they would know the Lord's blessing of their bread and water, as he says, uh, where they would know health and fruitfulness. But in so far as they lived in the light of his abiding presence among them, and insofar as they had him as the Lord their God, with no other gods before him, that was their true destination, their true location. Now let's remind ourselves again of the nature of this covenant. The Lord is entering into this binding relationship with Israel based on unbreakable promises. He has declared his intention to be their God, to walk with them and dwell among them, to make them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As his holy people, he then requires them to live out their holiness. As uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 puts it, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What was their calling? To be his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. So walk in the manner of uh, worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to main the, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's, that's the fruit of one who's walking in obedience to God's perfect uh, law of love. And we heard the Israelites state uh, at the beginning 
all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And here they say it again, here in 24 verse 3, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So all that remains now is for this covenant to be sealed with blood. A covenant-making ceremony always involved the shedding of blood. As animals were sacrificed, it was a way of saying, if I do not remain true to my promises I've made today, may my blood be on my own head. May what has been done to this animal be done to me if I am not true to my word. By binding the covenant partners to their promises, the blood also bound them to one another because they participated together in this sacrifice. The shed blood, uh, as we see here, is, is thrown in two directions, half of it against the altar, which represents the Lord, and half on the people. The Lord and his people are now one because they are both stained with the blood of the covenant. Then next, something remarkable happens. To this point, the Lord had appeared on the mountain in thick cloud and darkness with smoke and thunder and and lightning. Only Moses and Aaron could ascend the mountain into the cloud while the people had to keep their distance. They weren't even allowed to touch the side of the mountain. But now that the covenant has been sealed in the blood of this sacrifice. Both Moses and Aaron, along with Aaron's sons, representing the line of priests that would come from him, and all of the 70 elders, representing all the tribes and all the clans of Israel, they all go up the mountain where what was previously unthinkable happens. They actually see God. This thick, dreadful darkness of the cloud is lifted and they see the Lord under whose feet is what looks like this pavement of sapphire, clear as the sky. The the cloud has gone and there's nothing but brilliance and clarity. They've been brought into the throne room of the Lord, the King of all creation. They've been brought in to see him in all his holy majesty and power and authority. What's what's more remarkable is that in this place, the first half of verse 11 tells us that he did not lay his hand on the chief men of Israel. In chapter 19, Moses was told, Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. But now the priests and the elders of the people have walked right into the presence of the Lord without fear of him breaking out against them. They're they're able to look on his face and not die. What's even more remarkable is what happens in the second half of verse 11. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord has not only welcomed them into his throne room, but he's prepared a meal for them 
and they feast with him in his presence. A covenant wasn't complete without a meal. The the covenant partners would sit down together and have a shared meal. They would celebrate their unity and fellowship that had been established and sealed with blood. And the meal would include the flesh of the sacrifice, which would further establish their unity because they ate the one flesh from which had been drawn the blood that had sealed the covenant. Eating together was the ultimate expression of trust, of fellowship, of expressing a bond that was like that of a family. Last week in preparation for communion, I read Hebrews 4 verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And a bit later in Hebrews, we read, let us draw near with a a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That, That sprinkling there is a reference to the sprinkled blood of the sacrifice. So our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of the sacrifice there on Mount Sinai gave the elders of Israel the confidence to draw near to the Lord to see him and to have fellowship with him. We we must not miss the astounding significance of this. This short statement in verse 11, it's one of the most profound, one of the most revolutionary statements in the whole Bible. What a thing for it to be said of you, they ate, they, they beheld God and ate and drank. The writer, he, he even uses two different words for beheld in verse 10 and verse 11, as if he's trying to, to drive home the incredible confronting thing that's happening here. This is the God who later says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And yet here are these people so close to the Lord that they are able to gaze upon him while they eat and drink with him. How could this be apart from the blood of the covenant that has brought them together? Jesus has made a new covenant with us and he has sealed this covenant in blood, his own blood. He has pushed aside the thick cloud of God's wrath that hung over us and he's brought us into the presence of the Father whose throne room is also a banqueting hall. Hebrews 12 tells us, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember the blood of Abel? Abel was murdered by his brother and the Lord said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It cried out for vengeance, for justice, for judgment. Jesus' sprinkled blood cries out a better word. It cries out mercy, forgiveness, grace, restoration, welcoming in. It cries out that we can now come with confidence and we can be held, we can behold God. We can see his face. That remarkable, shocking statement, they beheld God and ate and drank, is true of everyone whose faith is in Jesus. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us in. Jesus ushers us into the throne room of God the Father. And in his presence we eat and drink. Not, not mere physical food. Our food is Christ himself. Our drink is the spirit with whom he baptises us. Jesus Christ has truly been the angel of the Lord who has guarded us until we reach our destination. A destination in the embrace, in the throne room, in the banqueting hall of the Father. Living Word Bible Church. Teaching the Bible verse by verse.